and welcome to uh, Conversations on EU Pharma. My name is Kate O'Regan and I will be the host of the discussion. Today I'm really happy to be discussing value-added medicines with two experts in the field. The first is Monica Fletcher, OBE, who works with the University of Edinburgh. Hello, Monica. Hi there, Kate. And our second expert here today is Maya Sercic, who works at Medicines for Europe and leads our sector group and our work on value-added medicines. Hi, Maya. Hi, Kate. Hi, Monica. Hi. So as I mentioned, we're here today to discuss value-added medicines, but maybe, Maya, can I ask you, what are they? Can you explain a bit the concept to us? Yes, sure, Kate. So when we talk about value-added medicines, we talk about taking something that already exists, so well-known medications, existing molecules, and then rethink, reinvent, or optimize their use. So what we are doing here is applying continuous innovation approaches, so sort of step-by-step innovation. Yeah, great. And Monica, does this sort of idea resonate with you? Oh, yes, absolutely. Whether it's a completely new system of delivery, whether it's repurposing a medicine that we've had for many, many years, I think this is just so important moving forward that you know, where is where does innovation stop and start here along the cycle? It's not necessarily inventing new medicines. It's it's perhaps how we deliver them and how we actually set that in the context of where we are today and how people live their lives. People live full and active lives with long-term conditions. And I think this is all about supporting them in how they can live their lives without considering their diseases that they have. Yeah. And one thing I hear from both of you there is this element of patients being at the center of the care and the medication that they're receiving equally around, you know, this sort of designing, this concept of designing innovation around the patients that you aim to serve in the end. And I'm wondering, I mean, it's a question to both of you, but maybe we'll start with Monica. So, I mean, what is the benefit of patients having a say in how their care and their treatment is designed around them? Absolutely, because at the end of the day, we can make the best medicines and we can make the most adaptions to medicines that currently exist. But if patients don't use those medicines, then it's worthless. So actually to gain patients throughout the process. Now, I think gone are the days that we can sit in laboratories and, you know, decide on new medications um, without actually engaging patients. So you may come up with a new compound, a new molecule, and it's very successful in vitro. But actually, when you take that out, you know, does anybody ever consider, does a patient really want an inhaled device? Do they really want to have a tablet? Would they prefer a patch? Would they prefer, you know, another way of having medicine? And all of those will affect ultimately how a patient really values that medicine, but also whether or not they adhere to their medication as prescribed going forward. So I think, you know, engaging the patients right from the beginning. And even is there a need? You know, again, I think days have gone now where you can just think, well, I perhaps some academics have a particular interest and feel that there is an area that they really, really want to investigate. Without engaging patients right from the beginning and what that need is, is it an unmet need or could something be repurposed that's already out there? Yeah, Maya? Yeah, I think there was a very interesting thing Monica said at the beginning. So if medicines are not used, I mean, they're not effective, right? And I think I've read somewhere recently that around 50% of patients, 50 so half, have an issue with adherence to medicines. And with that, I don't want to give a false impression that they are being somehow 
lazy in using them, but I think it's a real issue of medicines being adapted in the way that patients can use them best, which then results in also a lot of consequences like worsening of the disease, uh, hospitalization, that there's a lot and a lot of hospitalization cases that are actually consequence of uh, inappropriate use of medicines. And I remember being trained as a pharmacist. For instance, one of the key things you would be trained on in a community pharmacy setting is how to advise patients on inhalers, because this is one of the areas, and Monica knows so much more about this than I do, but where patients really struggle with, because there are all these different inhalers and how to use them properly and which one is the best fit for the patient. So I think there's a lot that can be done to help and we should try to use technologies we have to make this work best for the patient. Because also I think the one contact you have with your specialist and then, you know, in a community setting with a pharmacist, that's not someone who is with you day to day, but your device is. So if we can improve this device in order to help you, I mean, we could save also, on the other hand, so much resources in the health. This patient is then not hospitalized. So I think it's really this shift of how we look at the healthcare overall. I'm really pleased you've, you've brought up respiratory because obviously from my own journey over the years, you can see how things have changed. And, you know, first of all, we had monotherapies. We then looked at using the same therapies, but combining therapies. So we got to combinations then we've got to triple therapies. We've looked at the number of times people need to use their inhaler devices. So minimizing that. So as I said earlier, remembering something once a day is probably much easier than twice a day, or sometimes it used to be three or four times a day. So looking at the amount of times people take it, how they take it, all of this has changed you know, over the years. I think what's also important, and, and this is where I think where we're moving into the, where technology meets respiratory as such, is patients don't have that immediate feedback quite often with, with devices. So they may get a feedback, and we've tried this over the years with different inhalers that click, make noises. You know, patients can get some immediate sort of understanding that they've taken their medicine. But this is where we move into the exciting area of the digital technology within particularly respiratory care, because if a patient can get one feedback that they've taken their inhaler correctly, as well as having some kind of monitoring that enables them to know that their a disease state is improving, this gives a complete um, platform for patients to really start to have what we call self-management or supported self-management. Because up until now, there's been quite a paternalistic approach to this, that patients have to go and be seen by someone using their inhaler and um, time and time again. And, and this is quite, you know, this is unreal. This isn't what really happens in real life. So having something where a patient can get feedback that they've taken their device correctly, they've had the right inhalation technique, that the medicine has got where it needs to go, and they're taking it regularly, and they can see that their healthcare is improving. All of this is important for the future of, um, you know, the adherence around asthma therapy and also giving control straight back to the patient. So I'm not saying there won't be a need for pharmacists <laughs> or nurses or doctors in the future, but actually using them in a very different way so the patient actually is at the centre of this. And, and this is only happening because, as you started this conversation, through value-added medicines, this whole look at, you know, how do we redesign things that we've already got the medicines going into these new technologies today aren't new medicines. It's the technology that's new. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, one element you've both mentioned a little bit is the role of healthcare professionals here. And I'd like to explore that a little bit more. I mean, we've spoken a lot about how this kind of innovation uh, brings benefits to patients. And of course, that's essential. But what's in it for the healthcare professional, be it the pharmacist, nurse, the doctor, those prescribing, what's in it for them? Maybe Maya, can I start with you? We still have a lot of medicines that need some sort of pre-preparation that can use, for instance, for one of the recent developments where a manufacturer changed from some kind of powder in a vial to ready-to-use medicine, which decreased the preparation time by 30 minutes. So each time a nurse or a pharmacy technician had to use 30 minutes to prepare one medication for patients. So that's, in the end, a lot of hours that can be used to actually attend patient needs and talk with them and help with other things that may bring more value to the system. So this is something. Or on the other hand, if we talk about global health, for instance, we have a lot of medications that needs to be stored in a refrigerator or frozen. If we can change that, to have it stored at the room temperature, that would bring a lot of benefits in the countries where, you know, this this might not be possible or harder to achieve. So I think there are a lot of things we can also achieve in terms for healthcare professionals to ease the use and to use some resources in the system. And I think that's become evident to, well, actually the population at large, because we've seen it with COVID vaccinations, haven't we? I think another area that I'd like to sort of bring up here is, you know, if you think about what's happened with warfarin and then how we used to have to manage people on anticoagulation therapy and now we have oral anticoagulation therapy we don't need to run all those clinics we don't need to do all the way that we used to do in fact that is saving the healthcare system so much money and for patients the convenience of not having to you know have all those appointments and yeah it just feels so archaic now to look back and think about how we were you know managing that commonly i know you know some patients can't take oral anticoagulation therapy but that's that's a classic yes and i think that's really good to draw from existing examples that maybe sometimes we take a bit for granted but when you put it like that monica we really see how this sort of innovation has come about and really changed just the healthcare system but also people's lives and what struck me as you were talking is, you know, how can we quantify this, Maya? Is this an important part of value-added medicines, like quantifying the benefits that we're delivering for those who are using this innovation? That's a very good question, Kate, and uh, very difficult to answer because, I mean, if we start on a very philosophical level, how do you quantify health? And, uh, but maybe looking more into the benefits that value-added medicines can bring, that there are some that are you know, easier to maybe quantify as the way we do this when we look at medicine. So effectiveness, safety, this is quality of life. These are some things that traditionally look at and we look at medicines. But then things like adherence that we've been talking about today a lot, that's a bit more complicated because how do you show this before medicine actually reaches the patient? Because that's usually when you have to discuss with the authorities, is this medicine going to be reimbursed on the market? And I think here we have to find some new solutions because also value-added medicines really don't fall into these categories that we traditionally use in the assessment of medicine. So we have the breakthrough innovation where we talk about novel chemical entities, and then we have generic medicines that are the off-patent version 
of those. So how do we assess this added value, let's say? Unfortunately, what we see around Europe is that not every country is looking the same way at this. And we really see that there are countries that are uh, maybe looking into real world evidence right now and also are trying to think about how to pragmatically address some of those needs. And then there are countries where it gets very complicated because they look at this in a very classical way. And I think this is not a sustainable model. And we have in Europe, we have counting UK, we have 28 countries, and every country having sort of different approach to this is also very unpredictable. So there's definitely some work that needs to be done on that end to try to figure out how we can work together and design some of the you know, approaches to evidence that would help us understand better what is valued by healthcare professionals, by patients, by policymakers, and how to show that. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I think what has struck me a, a bit through this conversation is that we've discussed the potential of value-added medicines, right? And we know the benefits are there for patients, for healthcare professionals. They bring, you know, sustainable and cost-wise innovation to our health systems that are struggling all over. But why isn't it happening then? Like, what's the issue? Let's say, first of all, is it happening well elsewhere? Uh, that's a question to you, Maya. And for you both, then why aren't we making the maximum use that we can of these medicines? So maybe, Maya, I'd start with you. Is there is there another region that's embracing this kind of innovation and speeding it up? Or are we the only ones looking at this? Yeah, so these type of medicines can be developed for global markets, so for all around the world. What DICTA does tell us that around two-thirds of value-added medicines are actually present on the U.S. market, but not in Europe. So that is unfortunate, and we did kind of look at why is this happening, and there are several reasons for it. So. What we see in the U.S. is that they do have kind of a pathway for registering those medicines. So it's a you know legal pathway called 55B2, but I'll not bore you with the details. But this does give this medicine some kind of recognition that they are different. They do also get some kind of incentives for this that are proportionate to the innovation and to the data that is presented. And then also what we have in Europe is what we already talked about earlier, a very complex system that every country has a very different system to evaluate the benefit of these medicines and that in some countries there is no system to evaluate value-added innovation. So there's definitely a lot to be done, but I think we really need to change how do we think about the innovation and kind of adopt this continuous innovation approach in Europe and create the whole ecosystem around it. So starting from the regulatory processes, which can be more straightforward, which can also give more predictability of what kind of evidence is needed for the developers to the market exercise, to the recognition of their value. Yeah, I think one of the other things it goes back is what we've got here is a complex system. So we're not just talking about the usual regulatory systems that we would talk about with perhaps large pharma used to with bringing a new drug to market. 
we're now combining and industries are having to look at how they collaborate because it's not going to be perhaps the large pharma company that is going to be the company that comes up with the innovation around an app or a wearable or whatever. We're now having to bring companies together who just perhaps in the past have not spoken to each other. And there's so much innovation happening in the small to medium-sized companies. So I think it is, going back, Kate, to your question, I think it's because it's complex and it's not traditional. So we're having to look at different ways of working in this environment is one of the issues. I mean, cost is always another one. It's always going to be there. And it's going back right from the beginning about, do we need all of this? Now, I remember somebody saying to me once, just because you can, do you do it? You know, it's not just because you can do it. Do you do it? You know, do you make a choice to do that? And we, we've got to try and balance that in the system. So it's about managing change. It's about actually, you know, different people, different partners working together. And I think, you know, it has been slow, but I do, I do believe that we are seeing an acceleration here. But the regulators have to change and the rules have to change. So I'm going to start bringing the discussion to a close at this point. And I would like to ask you both for maybe the one thing that excites you most about this area working in value-added medicine. What's the one thing that gets you up in the morning to work on this topic? Well, I think for me, it's about it goes right back to what's at the heart of, of what drives me. And that's about patients. And that's about giving patients far more choice, having patients at the center of what we're doing, using them as part of user-centered design and finding solutions for people and their lives so that they can live healthier lives with or without disease. So, yeah, for me, it's about the patient driving this. Yeah. So I think in my answer in the end, it will be very similar I think when we kind of look into this, you know, in the policy world, we look at the concept. So sometimes we are far away from the patient, but hearing then these stories of how something was transformed and how does it impact patient life, I think it's something that really strikes me and motivates me to continue advocating for value-added medicines, as I think it's so important and hope we can bring different medicines that will serve patients in the future. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you both for being part of the discussion today and for sharing your expertise. I must say what strikes me is that the the future of value-added medicines is very bright with uh, experts like uh, you, Monica, and like you, Maya, really leading the way for us all. So thank you very much for being here and for this discussion and uh, for sharing your views. Thank you, Kate.